I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And Sarah Heppola is the author of the 2015 best-selling memoir, Blackout, Remembering the Things I Drank to Forget. She's the host and creator of America's Girls, a podcast about the history of the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders and the co-conspirator of Smoke em If You Got Em, a weekly podcast about what's burning through the culture right now. She's a writer at large for Texas Monthly, and she lives in Dallas. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. That bio was 100% accurate. You know, I always love when it's like something at large because it makes it sound like you're on the run. I have no idea what it means. <laughs> they, they don't know what it means either. It's a fancy term that they give you when they don't want to bring you on staff. Mm. And they're like, but look at how we sweetened the pot. We added at large to your title. You're exactly right. It sounds like writer on the lamb, which I am. Yeah. As a freelancer myself, I suppose that's the life. Yeah. So for our audience, you and I first met in January at an event Megan Daum, a fellow guest of the show, was hosting. And we met specifically via what I've taken to call my compliment jacket. Yeah, that's what it is. I wondered if you remembered this. I have a very specific memory of it. I don't know what it is about this jacket. I got it as a gift for Christmas last year, just literally a couple weeks before you and I met. And whenever I wear it, there's a 50% chance that it will get a compliment. And I mean that specifically. The jacket gets a compliment. I'm merely the, I'm just the thing carrying it while it receives the flatter. No, I didn't even notice you. There was some delivery system for a very cool jacket floating around the party. That is exactly right. It was very 70s looking. It reminded me of, uh, you know, it's Stripe. I lo- I'm, I'm such a sucker for Stripes. Mm. And it was sort of like, like what, remind me what the Stripes colors were. Yeah. So the jacket, I'm looking at it right now, actually. So the jacket is blue and then it's a, I have to turn around, yellow, orange, and red stripes. Yeah. It was just it was very nice and primary colorsy. I just remember being like, where can I get that jacket? And so then I had to go introduce myself to you to basically do the like, hey, nice to meet you. You seem to be wearing this jacket. Where'd you get that jacket? <laughs> Yesterday, a barista at a coffee shop nearby here in Silver Lake gave it a compliment. Uh, on Sunday, while I was in San Diego, a man who I do not know literally chased after me as I was leaving a restaurant to ask where he could buy one. I have never in four decades on this earth had a piece of clothing that's received more than maybe three compliments. And in five months alone, I've tried to do the math on this. This jacket has racked up probably 20. I can't decide if this would make you want to wear the jacket more or less because I I could think like part of me is like, why wouldn't you wear it every day? And then also this other part of me is like, guy, you must start feeling like this is fish in a barrel. Right. Well, and it also, I mean, I think this is probably appropriate considering the vulnerable territory this conversation is likely to go. Mm -hmm. But I've begun to become almost in some ways less secure while wearing the jacket because it feels like the jacket is the thing that's getting the compliment, not me. So I'm merely just like the ambassador for the jacket or I'm the, yeah. I'm the diplomat yeah. presenting the jacket. Yeah. So yeah. no one's really there for me. No. And, and I've gotten used to this because I have a very adorable dog. Oh, yeah. A similar thing. Yeah. Whenever I walk the dog around the neighborhood or, or when I go to a coffee shop, and especially when I go to the coffee shop without my dog, Charlie, the barista's eyes will look to the ground first and then they'll look at me. And, and they try to hide their disappointment, but I see it. 
And so I feel like with my jacket, sometimes it's like I'm wearing my dog. Yeah. 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 I was teasing you about, I mean, I was, I was curious who you were. I mean, mostly just because of the jacket though. I, that was 75% of it. (laughs) But this reminds me of when, you know, I spent a lot of my early twenties pretty heavy. I was very heavy drinker and between the booze and the breakfast tacos to repair the damage of the booze. You know, I was carrying around a lot of extra weight. So when I did quit drinking at 35, I lost a lot of weight. And it was very strange. Like for a decade and a half, I'd been like, why doesn't anybody think I'm hot? Everybody needs to think I'm attractive. And (laughs) And then guys started finding me very attractive. And I was like, they don't even see me. They don't even know that I'm funny. (laughs) Like, Mm. I remember having a date with this one guy and he was like, he was like, you... It's like sitting with Nicole Kidman. And I was like, right, except that I'm seven inches shorter and like 20 pounds heavier, but fine. And he was like, it's just, you're like Nicole Kidman. And I was like, I'm not at all. And it was so strange to me. It's going to sound like a weird humble brag, but it, it was strange to me to have this experience of people paying attention to me, but not in the way that I had been accustomed to them paying attention to me. And something that I'm, I latch onto and relate to about what you just said too And I hope that anyone listening understands the comparison I'm trying to make. I don't want to be insensitive to people who like have a very serious version of what I'm about to describe, but I think I'm slowly coming to terms. I was talking with my fiance about this like a week or two ago because I think she kind of confirmed it for me. I'm slowly coming to terms with the fact that I think I have just like a light form of like body dysmorphia. For sure. Like, oh, for, <laughs> no, I, I mean, you, I, the way I you can were, already tell, the way you, I can already tell. <laughs> Sorry. The way you responded, just like affirming it was so yeah. funny. Yeah. No, I mean like, like knows like, I mean, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, I get it, but, but please tell me more. Well, it's just, I've struggled with my weight for my whole life. And, but the thing is, is that I've volleyed between, I think at my lightest, I was like 154. I'm six mm-hmm. feet tall. Oh, okay. 154. And then at my heaviest, I was like 232. But it's interesting looking back at the photos of me from when I was like 153, 154. Now I look at them and I see, oh, I was too skinny. But at the time, I was like, I look great. And I realized that I have this thing where if I even just have like a little bit of fat on me, I feel enormous. Mm. And I feel unattractive and I feel uh, like I don't deserve any compliments that anyone is giving me. And so that's what I latched on to what you were saying earlier, where it's like, I wonder what it is inside of us where when we get a compliment, we feel the need to deflect it or deflate it or make it out like, oh, this person is just trying to be nice to me and they're lying to me. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things were going on for me in that one moment. One is that like you have you know, kind of suggested here, it felt unearned, right? Like, no, that's not true. I don't look like Nicole Kidman. Now, I've been, people have told me I look like Nicole Kidman since I was 13 years old because we actually do kind of in the face look alike. But my body has changed so much over the years. You know, she's this tall, lithe thing. And I have just been this shape-shifting, you know, five foot two fire plug, right? You threw some numbers out on the table. I'll go ahead and do it too. I'm five foot two and I never get below like maybe 130 because I'm pretty curvy, but I went up to like 190 when I was drinking. So I was much heavier. And and part of the confusion for me is like, I've had times where I was 190 and I was like, I look awesome. And then I'd see pictures of myself and be like, oh my God, is that what I look like? And then I've had times where I was 130 and I was like, ah, 
this isn't what I wanted it to be. And I see pictures and I'm like, whoa, is that what I look like? My ability to kind of filter my actual appearance through my own mood and self-image, it's just quite a distortion machine. But I, I don't know if this is body dysmorphia. Maybe it is. And certainly I think anybody that struggled with weight knows the experience of having like a couple pounds extra and then it just feels like so much more. I know that. And this thing has been going on for, I mean, 48 years old. So I've been up and down and all around for a good 38 years now because I stopped growing at 10 years old. Like I was five foot two at 10 and that stayed the same. But the rest of me was shape-shifting throughout the years and my attitudes about it have whipsawed all around. And I've come to see it as one of the most complicated relationships of my life, which is my relationship to my own body. Yes. I'm going to go out on a limb here because I wonder if we're also similar in this other way because I wonder if these two things are related. In the same way that when I look at a photo of myself like a year after it's been taken, I can see that I'm attractive. Yeah. And I mean that in, in like a, a, I'm not, I'm no Brad Pitt, but what I mean is, is like, yeah, you know, you're bragging right now. It's fine. You're <laughs> super hot. It's okay. No, it's fine. You look like George Clooney. Thank you so much. <laughs> I, I guess what I mean is whenever I see a photo of myself immediately after it's been taken, I hate it. Yeah. It's why I have, I, I have very few photos of me and my fiance or when she wants to take a photo of me, I usually try and talk her out of it. Even though I I'll take like a thousand photos of her a day. I'm just I could not take enough photos of her, but if she wants to take a photo of me, I just, um, I recoil inside because when I see the photo immediately, when I see it, I'm like, I'm hideous. But then six months or a year later, for whatever reason, I look at it and I'm like, oh, I'm not so bad. And the reason I bring that up is, is I also experienced that with work. I was just thinking that. Yes. Yeah. 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 So like when I've made a short film in the past or when I write something or when I publish a, a podcast, you know, I work in advertising when something gets released. Immediately when it's released, I'm like, why haven't I been fired? Yeah. I'm an imposter. Everything I release is a sham. Yeah. And then like six months later, somewhere between six and 12 months later, I'll go back and watch it or I'll go back and listen to it. And I think that's pretty good. I wonder what it is about the passage of time that allows that to happen. Well, I know for me that there is a high alert perfectionist hypervigilance that that gets enacted both through my work and through photos which I think are a kind of performance. I mean, I think the reason it's getting acted through photos is that they're taking a picture of me and I believe, whether it's true or not, that my appearance has some attachment to my value. You know, and I think there's a lot of really good reasons I think that and then there's a lot of messed up reasons I think that, but it's definitely, you know, especially with somebody I'm dating, it's interesting that you told that story or like recently a guy that I think is super cool and cute took a picture of the two of us, and um, I hated it. And the reason I hated it was because I didn't like him having a photo of me that didn't look good, you know? If it had just been me, my photo, I don't, I don't really care. But it was like he was going to have the photo, and then I didn't like it. I wanted him to think I looked better. There was something about my own deficiency that was getting brought up at that moment. And such a similar thing happens with my writing where it's like, I'll finish some writing and then somebody wants to read it. And I'm like, no, 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 it's not ready. There's like this primal, like, I need to make it better. You can't see it yet. 
because I think that my value is going to dip in some way. And, you know, all this stuff, you said the word fraud, imposter syndrome, those things get kicked up for me when I'm in that performance mode, basically. And I admire people in my life. They don't need a photo to tell them that they look a certain way, you know? Like a photo is just a capture of a moment. It's not a capture of your value as a human being. But it's tricky for me. Yeah, and I relate to that. That ties in rather well with an essay you wrote called Lush for Life in Salon. Oh, yeah. That was published on December 31st, 2010. New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve. As you mentioned to me, it was the first time you ever wrote publicly about your drinking. And what was interesting is going back and and reading it yesterday, I remembered that I had read it when it came out. Oh, cool. And so it was this weird feeling of deja vu where I'm like, oh, I remember reading this really loving it. Mm. And now I'm reading it again to prepare to talk with the author of the piece that I loved 13 some odd years ago. I know, it's so long ago. <laughs> but there's a quote from that essay that is just like, you could have just said it. And it is, being drunk solved one of the key problems of my existence, namely that I was me. And man, do I relate to that line. I'm like uh, getting emotional thinking about it because just specifically even just absent the alcohol. For me, we talked a bit about this before we started recording, but I find myself, and I've noticed this a lot with other people who have creative tendencies or write or make any kind of artistic output, is this struggle with the self, the struggle to come to terms with the self, the struggle to be present, the struggle to be able to look at a photograph of yourself and just be content in the clothes that you wear, to think that the compliments that you get aren't because of the jacket you have on, but because someone is genuinely interested in you. Like all the things that we wish we could be, but we struggle to achieve. And then all of the ways that we try to attain it, either through alcohol or drugs or through therapy or all these other ways, healthy and unhealthy, that we just strive to get to the thing that we wish we could be. I know it's sort of the story of the greatest and worst parts about me you know, is that ever since I was a little girl, I had this sort of striving to be someone, to be someone different. For me, I think a lot of that stuff gets rooted in the fact that my family had moved to Dallas from Philadelphia when I was about four. And we were really outsiders in a very insidery kind of part of town. We didn't have a lot of money. The town was very rich. I was very aware of my difference from a young age. And then that got amplified because I went through a very early puberty uh, I don't know why, but I did. I was 10 years, I was like the youngest kid in class and I was the first one to hit puberty and it just made me extremely self-conscious in my body. And I started wearing like huge sweaters and I found drinking not long after that. Like, uh, you know, it was the 80s and, you know, this is the age of like teen sex romps and- Orkies, yeah. You know, Jodie Foster playing a prostitute at 13 in Taxi Driver, I guess that's the 70s. But, you know, like it was not that strange that my drinking career like ramped up at the age of 13. It was a very long road, and the first time I got drunk, I was like 11 years old, but I got so freaked out that I didn't do it for another two years, and then when I was 13, I looked much older, and I was hanging out with my older cousin's guy friends. They'd all graduated high school, and and they thought I was their age, and you know, of course, that was just the biggest compliment to me, and I got in myself into all sorts of trouble and adventure, because I think as much as I was over my head in those moments. I was also 
very much wanting to be over my head. I, I did not have a lot of male attention back at the school where I went. I wanted things to happen for me. You know, girls were getting kissed. Girls were getting boyfriends. I didn't get those things. And and drinking felt like it was the red carpet to adventure. And, you know, I kept taking that carpet ride for a very long time. But I wrote that story when I was 36 years old. I was about six months sober. And I was still not sure if, like, to be honest, I wrote that story for a kind of insurance to keep myself from slipping back because I had tried to quit several times and I kept getting like two or three months and then I'd be like, ah, fuck it. And then I'd find myself, it was kind of like this spin cycle of defeat. I mean, just, it was just back to the beginning, back to the beginning. I always thought of it as like shoots and ladders, you know, like you, you think you're at the end and then you get the, the shoot all the way back to the beginning again. That's what a couple of years of my life had been like. And I wanted to push past that point. So I wanted to kind of go public with what was going on in my life. I was having a lot of trouble committing to AA for kind of like boilerplate reasons. I was having a lot of trouble committing to a life of no drinking because it was all I had known for, you know, 20, 25 years. Well, if you'll allow me, I'd like to read a passage at the end of that essay. Oh, yeah. You wrote, six months ago, I woke up from a lovely wedding reception and couldn't remember how I'd gotten home. It wasn't particularly dramatic. Nothing was amiss in the apartment. My head wasn't aflame. Mostly what I felt was a blueness. And I remember thinking, above all other things, that the answer to any question I could think of was no. I would never change. I would never quit drinking. I would wake up in dog beds every Sunday morning for the rest of my life, and I would be the sweet, heartbroken little lush someone had to carry out of the bar. What a failure of creativity. What a narrow little pinhole I was staring through. I was 36 years old, and I thought that was just it. I decided to quit drinking for one day, and then I tried a month, and then six. Honestly, it's kind of how I drank, too, when I was trying to cut down. Well, I'll just have one beer. Okay, I'll have four. Wait, four makes me think six would be really good. I have no idea if I've quit drinking forever. Who knows if they've stopped doing anything forever? I don't even know if I want HBO next year. But that unpredictability is kind of the point right now, that there is the possibility of another story that's different from the one that came before. I'm totally confused about how to date without drinking, how to dance on a table without drinking, how to say yes without drinking, which is thrilling when you let it be, a question mark that stretches into the horizon instead of hanging grimly over the night that passed, end quote. Sarah, you are a great writer. Thank you. Your words are so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. That was a nice piece. Uh, you know, it's funny. There are pieces that I write that I don't have that uh, donkey kick of like, oh my God, oh my God. I remember feeling really comfortable about that piece. And it was the first time, kind of like if you've ever seen a picture of yourself and been like, oh yeah, that's what I look like. And it's nice. <laughs> Yes. You're not like the hottest person ever and you're not a troll. You're just like kind of a person and that's what you look like and it's okay. And that's what I felt like about that essay. It came out very fast. I had been sober for six months and had not been able to write anything. I had had a lot of my creative process was tied up with writing, either being, you know, a little drinky or, or also being hungover. Weirdly enough, I wrote very well hungover. I think because my defenses were down and I just was sort of like, mm. you know, too tired to fight my own brain. I'm like that with procrastination. 
I'll save something until it's hours away from being due. And that lets my guard down enough to actually vomit it out. That's very similar. And so it was all tied up with that. And I just I was thinking to myself, like, maybe I'll just be an editor. I won't be a writer after all. And then I just sat down and I wrote that piece. And I remember it coming very easily. And it just sort of felt like a like a nice trot that I was in. And I was very proud of it. And and even when I read portions of it today, you know, 13 years later, it's like, I really I really like that. I like how I captured that moment in time. By the way, just in case anybody at home is wondering, you actually don't dance on tables when you're sober. So that <laughs> part of the mystery, yeah. uh, at least in these 13 years, I have danced never on tables. They don't seem to demand it. Floors seem to be fine. Yeah. But anyway, it was the moment that I realized I could still write. And then when the story did pretty well and, and we put it out on New Year's Eve, it was a little bit of a like, hey, in case tomorrow you're feeling a little... A little, a little hungover, a little, a little shame, a little regret. Maybe there's this is something you could read. It did really well. I got a lot of praise for it. And I started to think that maybe there was a book in this. And then there was. And that was the book that you published in 2015. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it took three years or so to write that book. I mean, I, you know, again, part of my issue with myself too is that, you know, these are related actually for all my criticizing myself and hypervigilance and like, oh, you're an idiot. I'm also like way too grandiose. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to write this book in six months. And then of course, it took me three years. I was way off. I had to have a lot of false starts and kind of dead ends. I'd never written something so long. It doesn't just happen, you know, that like, oh, okay, you're used to running wind sprints, like go run a marathon, it's going to be a breeze. It's, you know, you have to recalibrate things. So it took me a while, but it came out in 2015. And there was a moment when I almost didn't write this book. And I was having a lot of trouble with it. I was struggling. I'd met with some people in the industry that were kind of like, first of all, there's too many recovery memoirs and it's kind of a cliched genre. And B, like nobody really cares about your story. And, you know, part of me appreciated the honesty because I didn't want everybody blowing smoke at my ass and telling me that it was going to be amazing if it wasn't. But I also was deflated, of course. Why was anybody going to care about my story? So it was nice that there was a fair bit of attention paid to that book. And it came out at a time when I think there was a lot of attention on women's drinking. There was an interesting intersection that people were a little bit afraid to talk about about the intersection between alcohol and sex and and particularly sexual assault, which had kind of taken over the news cycle, particularly at the college level. This is a few years before me too, but you're starting to hear just a drumbeat around consent and sexual assault and the, the phrase rape culture had become very popular. And, you know, a lot of people didn't want to talk about drinking and I was coming out of I mean, I was five years sober at the time, but I'd come out of decades of drinking life where alcohol and sex were so tied up. It was like, how could you separate those two things? So anyway, I I think that was part of why that book got the attention that it did. But it was, you know, I, I will tell you one other thing, too, while we're on the topic of unearned compliments or privilege or whatever. That book became a, a New York Times bestseller. And I'll never forget the day that I got the call, you know, because it was like a dream of mine, as it is for many writers, to be on the bestseller list. And I remember thinking at the time, like, I'm never 
going to not be a bestseller. Like, I'm always going to have this. I was so worried that I was a fraud. I was an imposter. And I, I didn't realize that, like, give me enough time and I'll turn this into its own, you know, tourniquet. I mean, it wasn't long before I was like, I'll never write another bestseller. Like, I didn't deserve that first bestselling book. I just lucked into it. I'm going to disappoint everyone with the next book. It was interesting watching me take something that was really like a dream of mine and watch me turn it into <laughs> to my own liability. The older I've gotten, the more I understand why Harper Lee never published a second book. Totally. As a kid, I read To Kill a Mockingbird and I was like, this is fantastic. She is an amazing writer. Why did she never publish again? And then as you get older, you realize it's a self-sabotage of a kind. But if you put out something great, whatever it is, then the fear starts to creep in. Oh, what if I can't top it? Because if something is truly great and well-received and a bestseller and acclaimed, and if you don't at least match it, then everyone's going to be like, ah, I guess that's the best she could do. But really, that's just a story you tell yourself. It's a story you tell yourself to protect yourself. General you, that might not be the story you're telling yourself, but it's certainly a story I tell myself. Well, look, if I only write one book, that's a pretty damn good little book. I, I'll be happy with it. It'll be on my obituary in my local paper. It's fine. But I think there's this other part of me that's just insatiable, also like terrified of disappointing people like that. That's like weird. My parents were very easily pleased. So it doesn't really come from them. I don't really know where this thing about like, I'm going to fail everybody. I'm going to disappoint everyone comes from, but I have it pretty big time. I think there might've been some wisdom in me just pushing out a book a couple years after I did blackout, but I didn't, I toured on blackout for like two years. I kept it going as long as I could because like the speaking engagements were coming in and the writing stuff, it was still big and I was getting interviews for just a long, long time. And then, you know, then I kind of fell into some writer's block and then it was like four years had passed and then five years had passed. And I was like, every year that passed was like raising the stakes on this next thing. It was like, well, I guess it's going to be pretty good. And I was like, oh, great. Now you add another year to this thing. You know, it's been eight years and I'm working on a second book, but I've been working on it for like three years now, at least. This is Unattached? Yeah, Unattached is the title that I finally settled on. And it's a book about being in my 40s and not having children, not being married, but having expected both of those things. I think around the time I turned 40, I was, I was reading a lot of stories about kind of like the childless by choice movement. And I was the personal essays writer at Salon, editor, excuse me, at Salon for many years. And so I was I was editing a lot of stories that were about women wanting to stay single, this kind of new, empowering solohood. I was a part of it, but I was sort of an ambivalent part of it. I never saw myself in the stories of these people that were like, thank God I don't have kids. Thank God I don't have a husband. I was like, what the hell happened? I had always wanted to have both those things. I, even back in college, when my friends were declaring like, oh, I'm not going to have kids. I'm not going to be married. I was like, oh, okay, I am. And then they all got married and they all had kids and I didn't. And so I was interested in, in investigating kind of the personal choices that I had made and also the choices that I didn't make. And then the ways that culture was changing 
And culture is kind of tracking along with the story that I'm telling. And people are getting married less. They're having children less. They're going to be a lot of women emerging into their 40s kind of going like, oh, I guess I guess I'm not going to do all that. Then, of course, you know, because of technology and all the different things, you know, people will be like, you can do it. You can have a child on your own. And, you know, I, I go through that phase, too. I mean, that's kind of a miracle and a giant complication is the door never really closes. You could you could keep opening it if you wanted to indefinitely. With science, we've achieved the near biblical. <laughs> the woman in the Old Testament who... So her name is Sarah. Yeah, there you go. Who had a, had a child much later than anticipated. Yeah, I know. It's fascinating. I did a story on fertility tests for young women for like Harper's or something. It was basically an excuse to get myself to New York and meet a fertility doctor. So I did an interview with him. And then in the afternoon, I did my own fertility test. Anyway, he was telling me these fascinating things about the ways that fertility treatment was evolving. You know, first of all, women can have their own child up to the age of 50 because you can implant embryos in their uterus, but they, they think it's probably going to be going on to 55. The thing that blew my mind was he was telling me that they were learning how to combine basically two gay men, like to get sperm and combine that and have a baby without an egg. And also for women to have two eggs and fertilize it without sperm. And I was like, that doesn't even make sense. But, you know, he was like, well, we'll be able to do it soon. And I was like, this is wild what they can do. I mean, it's pretty incredible. Of course, all these things are uh, astonishingly expensive as well. That made a lot of those choices easy for me. When somebody puts the $100,000 price tag in front of you, it's like, okay, I guess I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Right, yeah. Specifically on the topic of age, I'm 40 now, feels weird to say. And I've wanted kids uh, since... Gosh, I mean, I daydreamed about having kids when I was a kid. <laughs> I was like 12, 13 years old. Oh, that's darling. I would think about getting married. I mean, I was a nice little Christian boy saving himself for marriage at the time. And I would daydream about like, I wonder what my future wife is up to right now. And, I, you know, I thought I'd be married <laughs> at 25 and all these other Sweet. things. And so I still very much want at least one kid, maybe maybe two I'm talking with my fiance Anne about that. We've been talking about that at length for several months, even before we got engaged. This is all to say, I guess I'm more acutely aware of this living in Los Angeles, especially in the entertainment industry. I feel like a lot of people here have unhealthy relationships with their children. It's not uncommon for like children to be almost like accessories, something you have so you can say that you have it, like a Chanel bag. Yeah. More than that, you know, you see, I can like feel myself treading into, treading, treading into the murky water here, but yeah, do it. I'm putting my boots on. You can see people, you know, you're like, oh, so-and-so celebrity had, you know, fathered a kid at 70 or whatever, Yeah, you know, with his 29-year-old wife or whatever. Right. And the attention is always on, look at the age difference between these two. Can you believe that she's with him? Yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. More recently, as I've gotten older and I've thought about having a kid, And what that's going to mean at, let's just be honest here, if earliest I could probably have one, I'm going to be 41, maybe 42, just based on the passage of time. Yeah. And I think, okay, well, then I'll be 60 when he or she is 18, and then Mm -hmm. 70 when they're 28, and then 80 when they're 38, and so on. And, you know, my father was old 
for his time when he had me, his first son, at 32. And and I'm going to be 42 when I have mine. And I guess this is all to say, when I see like some 70-year-old celebrity having a son or daughter, I don't think so much about the age of his wife. I think more, man, you're kind of selfishly depriving your child of a dad. Like that's just kind of where my head goes. And I worry that like in some way... I don't know. I mean, obviously fate has its own way and I can't control when I get married and what happens to me, but there is a part of me that can't help but feel a kind of guilt that I wasn't able to be a younger dad. Does that make sense? Sure, of course. I mean, you you've already, you know, revealed yourself to be a conscientious, self-critical person and and probably an overthinker. So all of that makes sense and it <laughs> it, it checks out, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, tra- it tracks along with my own experience. I mean, I think one of the reasons I put off having a child as long as I did was the idea that I could do it the right way. And by that, I mean, you know, kind of get the travel out of the way, get the finances in order, get my drinking taken care of. It just so happened for me that waiting for the right time kind of meant missing the window. There are also women that, like, I remember when I think it was Brigitte Nielsen had a baby at 50 or maybe even later, like 58, because she's a dynamo. I remember reading internet comments that were like, she's so selfish She's going to deprive her kid of a parent. I mean, first of all, I guess what I would say about that is like nobody knows what's going to happen. I mean, I happen to think that Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, just for example, are going to live to be 120. <laughs> and Hoo-ha! yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there are people that have perfectly healthy fathers that drop dead of a heart attack at 50. And I've known them. That is very well said. And I also, to be a little bit unkind, maybe, I do wonder about those men that have seven and eight children. I mean, how involved are they in the lives of their children to begin with? I I don't know. Mm. But I guess there's an extent to which we are a little bit cursed with knowledge. And a lot of us are just like worst case scenarioing ourselves out of action repeatedly. And it's kind of like, I see this happening all over the internet, all across culture. It's like, well, don't do this, that, because this might happen. You know, it's the same way of like, don't let your child play on the playground because they might fall off and die. It's like, well, one out of a million, you know, or like kids can't walk to school because they might get abducted. Okay, well, like the statistics on that are like so low and so much lower than you're getting in an accident when you drive them to school. But the perceived fear is so great that it becomes paralyzing. So I think we all have this internet problem of like too much knowledge to you know, and, and you have to kind of push past that to create some kind of life. You know, there were all sorts of reasons not to write the book that I did. I wrote it. I'm so glad I did. <laughs> you know, I think there are so many good reasons, valid reasons for you not to be a father at 42, but there's so many better reasons for you to do it. And I suspect if I were to look into the crystal ball that contains your future while you're wearing that jacket, <laughs> got to wear that to the birth. <laughs> I think you'll be like, how could I have almost not done this? Like, how could I have almost said like, oh, if I can't live to see this person's, you know, 10 year high school anniversary, I'm not going to do it. It's like, like time and future. It's all uncertain to us. It's all a gamble. And I think the thing about it is it's worth taking the risk. And, you know, I I just think, I mean, first of all, I think it's really dear that you were dreaming of being a father at 12. And I don't know why I think that's so dear because I was too, but it's so interesting. You were dreaming about being a father at 12? Mm, 
<laughs> no. I was dreaming about being a mom and being like having a family, right? I was also, by the way, dreaming of being a pop star and a director. This is my problem. But I was dreaming a lot of things. But it's like, I think as a woman, uh, as I got older, I learned to be a little bit embarrassed by the kind of feminine longings, especially when I got to college. And it was like, I loved boys so much and I wanted a boyfriend. And it was kind of like not cool to want a boyfriend and not cool to be so boy crazy. You know, I was like, be interested in your work. And I was like, I know, but I mean, that's all interesting and stuff. But, you know, but what about boys? And I've been so love drunk and for most of my life. And I learned to kind of hold that back and not let people see it. Of course, it would just gush out when I drank. And, you know, now I, I don't try to hold that back as much anymore. And even at 48, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm boy crazy, but like, I'm definitely, I'm not done. <laughs> I'll say that, you know, like I still date. I still fall in love. I still get mentally obsessed. I still like, there's so many things that still feel like they're out there available for me. The mystery continues. Gosh, I guess that was a long answer to what my book is about. <laughs> That's quite all right. There's a lot there in a good way. One thing that you touched on that I think is is really relevant to society at large is I think that we are overcome with a viral kind of safetyism yeah. that is overtaking society. One of, I think, the most important guests I've had on in terms of sometimes I'll have guests on because I'm like, oh, this is just going to be a really interesting person to speak with. And then sometimes I have guests on. I'm not going to say beyond the next one which ones those are, but sometimes I have guests on because I'm like, I want to have them on as like a statement of my principles yeah. or like I want to have them on as a statement for like, I think this is important in society and we should pay attention to it. And one of those guests is Lenore Skenazy. Oh, I know Lenore. She's so cool. She is fantastic and lovely and wonderful and replies to every email I send her within like two minutes. <laughs> I have no idea how she does it. She is such an ambitious and busy woman. And yet yeah. like she responds to me like I've been her friend for 30 years. She rightly points out, as you have, that it's the curse of knowledge. The internet is the apple in the Garden of Eden, but it's like an apple of lies. It makes us think that there's a demon around every corner that's going to snatch up our children or that's going to murder us in an alley. Like I am for, I've spoken about this at length with other guests, there are broad parts of the social justice movement that I am a out and out fan of. Sure. But what worries me about some of it is the same thing. It's connected. It's the same thing that worries me about the parents who in many ways are robbing their children of childhood by thinking that their kids in rural Idaho are going to get murdered if they ride their bike alone, you know, for an hour. If every single time we see someone being mistreated by a police officer, you know, let's just say it like murdered unjustly by a police officer. In a country with, you know, 50 million encounters uh, between police and citizens every year, you know, one loss of life is, is awful. But in the age of social media, where every child kidnapping is plastered all over every feed you read, yeah. or every unjust police killing is retweeted 8 million times, a single event or a rare event seems ever-present and absolutely ubiquitous. Yes. And that leads to this situation where we're afraid for our lives and thereby robbing ourselves of lives to live because we're so scared all the time. That's right. And I worry that that's what's happening with kids with like things like climate change. Yeah. Like you said, to throw it back to you, Sarah, it's like I've heard 
people my age and younger who say, and I say this with kindness to them because I wish that they would snap out of it. They say things like, I could never imagine bringing a child into the world as it is right now. Right. I would feel irresponsible doing that. And all I can think of is like, there has never been a better time in all of human history (laughs) to bring a child into this world compared to what once was. Don't you find, though, that it's like people don't have ears for that? Yeah, yeah. I sometimes try to argue like, well, you know, women used to die in childbirth. I saw this around the feminist movement of 20, I would say like 14 to 18 or so, was very much into this idea of like, you know, women are oppressed, women are in danger. And I was like, women have never had it better in human history. Like there are so many ways that we have freedom that earlier generations would just be astonished. But I also see it around this issue of child rearing. And this one, I kind of tend to shut it on because I don't have kids. But I have, you know, listened to friends of mine who have had kids, you know, like break down in tears and be like, I can't believe I've done this. You would think they had killed their children, not given their children lives. And, you know, I think it is so hard to keep your head like rational when the internet is like this emotional wave crashing over you all the time. I used to date a homicide detective and he looked at the world through a very like yellow lens. And what I mean is like if we passed a dumpster, he was like, what's going to jump out of it? When he saw people walking into a store He was like, are they casing the joint? I was like, oh, no, they just want water. Because of his job, he saw the world entirely in terms of threat. And I saw the drain that that made on him. And I feel like 15 years later, it's like all my friends are like that. Like all my friends go through the world like homicide detectives. And they listen to these true crime podcasts and they freak themselves out with all the things that could happen in the world. They start to get afraid of like every alleyway, every car that's slowing down, you know, and then of course there's the news cycle and then you've talked about climate catastrophe. So for a little while, I had gotten very casual about saying like, oh, the world's falling apart. The world's falling apart. It's a dumpster. And I've stopped doing that because I think that reiterates this idea that we're in an actual catastrophe. And I think we are in a very, very fraught and challenging time. You know, the country has never felt so split in my lifetime. But one of the things I like to do is to go back and read stories from the late 60s, early 70s. I read a lot of Tom Wolfe, a lot of his essays around that time. I also sometimes watch like old crossfires with William F. Buckley, where he's got like Black Panthers on or Norman Mailer, you know, and you get a sense of just what an echo of that moment this is, you know, that people really did feel like the world was falling apart. And thank God they kept having children, right? My brother wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. The world has always been a dangerous place. As you pointed out, it's a safer one than it used to be. It's just that the perception of danger is so nose to nose with us because it's in our feeds all the time. You're articulating something that How do I word this, Sarah? I have a lot of personal experience with depression, the clinical, dark, bottomless depression, the suicidal ideation. Just I got the whole package. And I don't know what's happening to society at large, but in some ways, I recognize some of my worst 
illogical, cognitive behavioral therapy-esque tendencies playing out at a societal level and being encouraged. And it worries me. Yep. When I was at my most depressed, I think well-meaning friends, not really aware that, that it would make no difference at the time, would try and tell me, and I think they were telling the truth, that my life was pretty good. The problem is, is that when you're clinically depressed, that none of that matters. You, you could have, I mean, that's why when, you know, someone will take a, a friend or a colleague or a famous actor or whatever takes their own life, people who don't have experience with that kind of just blackness will say, but they were married, they had kids, they just got a promotion, da, 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 they had a book out, blah, blah, blah. Why did they do it? It doesn't make any sense. And in that way, depression, suicide is nonsensical. This is all to say, it's like when I was in my darkest, most depressed, clinically depressed moments, no amount of good news that was right, that was true, that was factual could shake me out of it. And more than that, I was offended when they would try and tell me how actually good my life was. I was offended because I felt like they weren't acknowledging my depression. Like I just wanted it to be acknowledged. And so when you give facts to, you know, friends of yours or colleagues and be like, hey, like there's never been a better time to be a parent. Your chances of dying in childbirth are ultra rare. Like you had a one in five chance 200 years ago and all the things that are legitimately true. Right. It's weird that we have created in some ways a society that has trained people to react to good news the same way that I would react to it when I was clinically depressed. And that alarms me. That's fascinating. You know, it's a really good analog and it helps me understand or have a little bit more empathy for why people respond that way. Because I know what it is to be depressed as well and to hear, okay, but this, that, and the other thing. And it's like, oh, fuck off. The question is how to get out of it. My mother is a therapist and therapists have, helped me through many dark passages in my life. But I sometimes wonder if we've gotten over-therapized, you know, and that like we are all so in our feelings and every feeling is as valid as the other. And it doesn't matter what the statistics are. It only matters that you feel a certain way. It's like, it feels like we've swung a little far to that side sometimes. And I worry how we go back. I am glad that we exist in a society now where getting therapy is normalized. Yes. It wasn't that long ago. Honestly, my first bout with depression was in 2009, and it was very intense. I lost a good year of my life to it, and I wish that I had gone to therapy then because instead, I was under the impression depression is for people with broken brains, and I don't have a broken brain. So I'm just going to fix myself. Yes. And I bandaged over an axe wound that festered. And then in 2013, due to a different circumstance, it came roaring back to such an extent that I was catching myself on the freeway, just sobbing so much that I couldn't even see the road because I was so overwhelmed with this bombardment of negative thoughts. For me, that's how the depression would manifest itself it was that I couldn't get the thoughts to turn off, right? Yeah. And so that was the thing that eventually was like, okay, if I don't go to therapy now, I hadn't gotten over the stigma of it, but I'm like, if I don't go to therapy now, I can't live because I I literally can't function. And then I went, I promised myself 
out of a, a sense of duty to my former self from 2009, I'm just going to do my best to normalize it. So I'm going to talk to other people and I'll bring it up in a very casual way. Like, oh, Michael, what'd you do today? Oh, I went to the movies. I did some grocery shopping. I went to therapy. I would just throw it in there. Yeah. And what was so interesting back then, 2013, 2014, is I would have friends who I'd known for like a decade, who all of a sudden they heard me say it and they're like, I've been going to therapy for five years Mm -hmm. and they'd never told me before, right? So I'm glad now that in 2023, we're at a place where we can talk about it. Mm -hmm. Here's the controversial thing. I don't want society run by people like me. I want society run by doers, not overthinkers. And I say that with empathy because I think if you have a society run by people who are overthinking all the time, like me, you'll make society unhealthy like I often am. Mm. I think you need society, you know, augmented with the overthinkers, with the neurotics, but I don't think you want society run with like a stamp of that. And again, I say this with kindness. I just wouldn't want society run by me in 2013 because I would be overthinking everything. I would be hyper negative. I would be paranoid. And I just worry that that's what's happening. You know, this 2013 is around the time Twitter starts to ramp up. And I do think that there is a certain like behavioral pattern that gets rewarded. There is a doom and gloom behavioral pattern. Like our friend Megan Daum has like for the longest time she had this pinned tweet, right? I can't remember it exactly off the top of my head, but it's like Twitter where personality disorders go to monetize or something like that. The outrage, the paranoid thinking, the worst case scenario thinking, the emotional knee jerkery, all of it gets very grandly rewarded on that site. I'm not saying other things don't too. Yes. You know, and then of course we have a, like in the media, we had a headline problem. That being that all the energy of a story had to move into the headline because you couldn't trust places to kind of go to your homepage and like you enough. So you had to like be constantly fighting with every other story out there for attention. And the headlines just got worse and worse and worse and more doomy and more gloomy and more carnage and more everything. Network times 10. It's no wonder that people think we're in such dire straits because it's not just a social media problem. It's also a media problem. And that becomes a kind of interpersonal problem. It's what you talk about with your friends. But do you ever do you ever hang out with people that are like not online at all? (laughs) Yes. One of the many reasons I feel like I'm her hype man right now. But one of the many reasons why I love my fiance so much, she's almost like chronically offline. And it's actually like a tether to land. Totally. You know, because sometimes I drift out into the ocean of social media And it feels so real because when you're in it, it is real. Yes. But it literally is. And again, I'm speaking from very personal experience here. You can get to a situation where you feel like you're in a room full of patients who are all there for cognitive behavioral therapy because they're all exhibiting the bullet points of unhealthy thoughts. One of the very first things that when I went to CBT in 2013, the very first thing that the therapist did was give me the sheet of literally like, these are unhealthy ways of thinking. And these are signs that you should be here. Mm. If you are exhibiting these things, cognitive behavioral therapy is for you. Mm -hmm. It's like catastrophizing, right? Like taking (laughs) a little event that is a little bad and making it the worst thing to ever happen, right? Yeah. Or us versus them, black and white thinking. 
And it was like a list of like 12 things. And I was like probably eight for 12. And yet, Sarah, whether it's COVID, like one death is too many, or if racism exists in an exchange between a waiter and someone at a restaurant at a small town in Ohio, then it's systemic. It's created these scenarios where we're unable to have ordinary, normal room temperature conversations Mm. about how to actually address these issues going back in time to the pandemic. If you just try to say, hey, I'm taking it seriously. I think we should all get vaccinated. Maybe it's not going to kill all of us. Social media and the internet has created the situation where if you try and step back from the most extreme take, you are labeled as someone who doesn't care about it at all. And I think that that creates a really toxic cycle that unless you, again, (laughs) have someone pulling you back to shore, you can get stuck in forever. Oh, yeah, 100%. And, you know, it's that weird thing of like, is social media real or is it not? And of course it is because there are real world consequences for those conversations. You know, people lose jobs, they gain jobs, status rises and falls. All those things have real world echoes and consequences. But it is, I find it so wonderful and grounding. I have a bunch of friends in Dallas that just don't even give a shit about all this stuff. And it's like, sometimes it's hard, you know, because I'll find myself being like, what do I have to talk about? Because all I want to talk about is like, and this happened on Twitter and this happened on Twitter. And then so-and-so did so-and-so. And it's like, <clears throat> stop it. Stop it. You know, like there is so much more to life. And I find that those people don't have the catastrophizing that you've described. I would love to see that list that your therapist gave you because I think you could put it on the internet and just go down the checklist of like, yep, Twitter does all of this. Back when I was on Twitter, I posted that list. It was a PDF. I posted the list. It went like a little viral. And one of the reasons why I got off Twitter was not just because it's an insane asylum in many ways, but also because it gives you that dopamine hit which makes you think that you're doing something when in fact you're doing nothing at all. In many ways, it, it really is like a drug. It makes you feel like, oh, I wrote a tweet and the tweet got 10,000 likes. And so that's important. And I've done something today. Oh, yeah. And then it evaporates into nothingness and you are actually exactly where you started. Yeah. I mean, the reason I'm still on Twitter is that I still find it to be a pretty profound conduit to the news cycle. It is, you know, I don't watch cable news. I cannot watch cable news. I mean, I'm just not interested. (laughs) I don't really listen to NPR anymore. I listen to podcasts. And then, you know, I really rely on Twitter to kind of know what's going on. And because of my job, I'm not a really hardcore breaking news journalist, but I am somebody that writes about culture. If I don't do it, I do start to feel like I'm too detached. So for me, it's hard to like, what's the balance of like dipping a toe in enough, but not getting pulled into the stream. I've definitely had a couple nights where like my eyeballs were glued. Like the day of the George Floyd protests or riots or whatever you want to call them, I couldn't stop watching Twitter. I was like toggling between cities and partisanships and viewpoints and threads. I mean, it was just wild. I'd never seen that much kind of like 3D information at once, meaning that it wasn't coming through this like curated news channel. It was like hitting me from all sides. It was almost like an orgy of news information. It was really, I mean, you know, I I think it was a little bit like addicting 
you lose patience for other things. And it can destroy your attention span. Yeah. I find it hard to read full books now. Yeah. When I was a kid, I could read, and I say this with just like, I'm thinking about it now, and it just in some ways makes me profoundly sad because I've tried to recapture it, and I feel like a part of my brain no longer exists that I had in the 90s, like it's been lobotomized. Uh-huh. When I was you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, I could just lie on the carpet of my parents' home with a book for like five hours, six hours at a stretch and just read and get lost in it. Yeah. And now I'll make my way halfway through an article and I'll be like, but what's on Reddit? Did I get an email? I get pulled away. I feel like something important was lost. The distractibility quotient of it is really dangerous and frustrating and I struggle with it too. But I'll tell you what, I think the American attention span is compromised. I think it's been shortened. But I am not convinced it's gone because, you know, people listen to these three-hour, four-hour podcasts. They listen to podcasts all day long. For me, podcasts are that uninterrupted attention stream. I don't have the ability to toggle over to other things. I do sometimes tend to be doing other things, meaning maybe they're mindless things like cleaning up or redoing my drawers or whatever the hell I'm doing. But it is deep attention. And that's one of the reasons I love the podcast medium. And you have to remember, you know, books are wonderful, but stories are initially an oral tradition. You know, they the stories can be in all forms. They don't have to be like read in a book for you to get stories and to love stories and to fall into stories again. And I think as we continue to kind of move into the technology age, I think podcasts will open up into something else that are probably not even called podcasts. They're just called whatever news. Like this is just how we do things. And we'll probably move away from that form of book reading. But that doesn't mean we'll abandon storytelling, I don't think. To a point you just made about podcasts being called something else, we are living in an age of like ever accelerating anachronisms. Yeah, I know. God. They're called podcasts because of the iPod. Right. And yet we still call them podcasts. But then again, we still call the supercomputers in our pockets phones. I know. This is such a good point. And it's not uncommon for the save button in an app to look like a floppy disk. Yep. So it's... (laughs) Yep. You're so right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah, like electronic mail, email. Yeah. I mean, I'm just still, I'm thinking of other things that were just named for the earlier form of it. And all of those signifiers will just look bizarre to future civilizations. Of course, it took me a really long time to figure out that the tweet on Twitter was like a bird's tweet Mm. and it was supposed to mimic the sounds of nature. I was like, Uh. it wasn't until I was outside once and I was like, is somebody tweeting me? And then I was like, (laughs) oh no, that's a an actual bird, you dumbass. Like they tried to mimic the sounds of nature. Oh, okay. It's interesting because it's like we're surrounded by the iconography of the things that we have killed. Yes. The internet and the USB drive and digital email killed the floppy disk. And I have an electric car and I still say step on the gas, which doesn't make any sense. Mm, Sure, sure, sure. And it's just like we have all these old lingering words that we're just piling up at an ever faster rate because our technology is advancing at an ever quicker pace. Well, it's a soft entry into becoming robots in the cloud. Yeah, like an episode of Black Mirror. Absolutely. If you'll allow me, I want to return to an earlier point regarding creativity. Yes. And that idea of when you really feel like you've captured something. I'd love to just explore how it works for you 
because I, I find like it, even just explaining it, when I'm trying to write something down, I, I can see it in my mind. Like every idea that I have, all my ideas are perfect. Mm. It's me trying to capture the idea. Yeah. And I feel like I'm trying to wrap my arms around it and pull it from my mind onto the page. Yeah. And as I pull it, it slips, like pieces of it start slipping away. Mm. Like I have a whole body, a body that's wriggling to try and escape. Mm. And I have it and I'm, and I'm trying to pull it through, like from my mind onto the paper. And as I pull it away, like fingers and toes and limbs start to just slip away until all I have on the page is like a stub. When I actually get it, when I actually have something that I was able to transport from my mind to the page exactly how I imagined it, it's like I've been able to save the whole human. Yeah. You know, but like oftentimes I feel like I'm just saving like a carcass or a toe or a limb. And it's always disappointing because I'm like, I wanted to save the whole being. Yeah. It's hard to describe, but like it's so satisfying when it when it happens, you know? Yeah, I like that analogy. I relate to it. It reminds me of, you know, some things Adie Smith had said about basically just that she is so disappointed and feels like such a failure at the end of each piece of her writing. That's the only thing that keeps her going mm. is the idea that she will get it right the next time. It's this sort of endless, foolish optimism of like next time, next time. I also remember hearing Tom Wolfe talk about like everything was perfect in his brain and then the heartbreak was watching it trickle onto the page. <laughs> Your baby analogy, <laughs> your poor baby getting ripped apart is very vivid uh, for the agony of what it is not to be able to kind of transfer something. Very rarely feel like I see a piece of writing before I have it. I usually start with an idea or a thought or a, a sort of starting place. It's like I'm always sort of like nosing around for a feeling. And I think even in trying to write, it's not so much there's like a body I'm trying to recreate. It's like there's a feeling I'm trying to recreate. And that is even harder. It's really hard for me to figure out if I've done it right. One of the things I've learned about myself is that there is not a really strong correlation between my feeling good while writing something or about writing something and the success of that piece of writing. Mm. In other words, I can finish a piece of writing and be like, I fucking nailed it. And everyone will be like, what is this? Or... <laughs> I can just have an absolute anguish, teeth-pulling time. And then people read it and they're like, that was so much fun. And I'm like, wow, okay. So it is tricky for me. And I do different kinds of writing. You know, like my primary mode of writing is the personal essay and memoir. And in that case, it can be really tricky because you're writing about your own life. And sometimes I don't have the best grasp on what's interesting about my life. Like, it's not until I start talking to other people about the material that they'll be like, oh, that's really interesting. And I'm like, oh, I just thought that was normal. And so it can take a few rounds and a few different tries. Every once in a while, it's like a lightning strike, right? Like, I'll just get it on the page and I'm like, I just, that was amazing. That I just nailed it. But most of the time... I'm having to kind of push things out there, see what floats. A lot of it I like. The, the biggest problem with this book that I'm working on now is not that the sentences are bad. 
You know, I mean, I tend to get a little bit too fixated on writing at the sentence level. It's that the larger story wasn't focused enough. I wasn't making choices that were very direct. Like the first book was kind of easy in this regard because it was a drinking story. So the biggest knock on Blackout, or not the biggest, but one of the big knocks on Blackout would be that it's predictable. You know, girl has a drinking problem, girl gets sober. Like everybody knows where it's going. This one was so hard because it's like, where do I start? Where do I end? What do I focus on? Is it about relationships? Is it about relationship to my body? Is it about children, but I don't have children? Is it about other people's children? So it was really, really hard and continues to be hard to figure out where to crop the frame. But I tend to be somebody that's always interested in getting the energy on the page. So I've just written reams and reams and reams and reams, literally millions of words. What I guess I'm trying to say is like, for me, there's been no deficit of good sentences, good phrases, good words. It's just putting them in a container that hangs together right and tells one complete story. It's macro stuff that's had me so hamstrung. And I'm, I continue to feel like, oh, I've got it. I've got it. And then I'll show it to somebody and they're like, well, that's good. But it's like, is that telling the story you want to tell? And I'm like, I want to tell all stories. Stop being so difficult. (laughs) It's very, very tricky. Yes. You know, in a recent conversation you had with Megan Daum on her Unspeakable podcast, she said in that conversation, quote, so much of writing and creative work is about choosing. Mm. You choose what you're going to say, but mostly you choose what you're not going to say. End quote. I would just love to get your thoughts on this, Sarah. I imagine especially when it comes to writing something autobiographical. Like, I think it's difficult when writing anything, but it's important for for folks who haven't done what you've done, who haven't tried to write about their own lives in this way to understand this. There is a kind of almost intense compartmentalizing. You have to like slice off parts of your own biography in order to make it mean something larger, mm-hmm. right? Like you have to be like, this is a story about this, right? Yeah. Have you seen, let me pull up the uh, the title of this. It was the story about the conductor. Tar? Yes. So the thing that I so loved about Tar that is so like idiosyncratic about it is that it has like themes, but it's very much like one would experience life almost in that a lot of the scenes will just kind of happen. And it's only once you like kind of step away and like look at the whole thing as like a collage, do you kind of begin to understand what it may or may not have been about unlike most movies, it doesn't have like this driving, like this is a movie about blank, right? That's right. And I think it's really important for people to understand what you're articulating, which is that when you write a book about yourself, in order to give it a drive, in order to give it a a pulse, a lift, a propulsion, you have to make it about quote unquote something. And what that means is that you have to lose a ton of what makes you you, of what makes your life life. Yeah, I actually think this is one of the hardest parts. People tend to think the hardest part of writing first person is kind of telling the truth or being vulnerable. They use that word a lot. I don't find that hard. Maybe it's because my mother was a therapist and I just sort of learned at an early age that it wasn't it wasn't embarrassing to tell these things about your life. And and I'm very aware that all that stuff is the good stuff. You know, I mean, I, I don't mean to overstate it. There's things in my past that I'm like, oh, I'd rather not tell that, you know. But for the most part, I recognize those as the stuff that works, that people are going to like, and they're my trading cards. I think one of the biggest challenges is cutting out the stuff that you don't need. And it's hard because you're like, but I had a brother, 
You know, I mean, like I've never cut my brother out of a book, but I've cut him out of stories before. You know, like you have to focus the light on what's relevant to the story. And it can be very confusing. And for me, sometimes feel like I'm not telling the whole truth. If I don't tell you, okay, but then this, that, and the other thing, an editor's or a careful reader has to come in and be like, you know what, we don't need to hear those things. And it's like, I guess not. But, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day and they heard that I was writing a second memoir and they were kind of like, wow, how have you had so many things happen to you and you've got two memoirs inside you? And I was like, okay, well, it does seem a little bit like egotistical. But the point I wanted to make to him was the first memoir was about drinking. So like it was only about my drinking life. Yes, there are other stories that were tangential, but unless they informed this story of drinking, they didn't go in. So really big stories like the homicide detective that I dated in my 30s and thought I was going to marry and was like head over heels in love with and he left me very abruptly. Like that never went in that book. It's in this book because it's part of the story of how I wound up not getting married. But, you know, the stories that feel so central to who made you the person you are, they just don't go. And it can be really hard. I don't have as much of a problem cutting, like they talk about killing your darlings, you know? Like, I don't have as much of a problem doing that. Like, cut a funny line. I'll I'll use it another time. I have a much harder time being like, okay, we're going to cut the childhood chapter. Okay, you know, it seems like it makes me who I am. But how much of that stuff do you need? It's a really hard question. And there's never really a right answer. You're always trying to kind of find the perfect recipe and there is no perfect recipe. I think you've touched on something very fundamental, which is that what makes a good storyteller, fiction or nonfiction, but in this case, let's say nonfiction, although I think we're also making the case right now that even a nonfiction story involves some amount of fiction, because how does one define a lie? Is a lie just the active application of an untruth, or is a lie also when we omit things that happened in an effort to streamline something? And I think what you've touched on is that what marks a good storyteller from a bad one is that a good storyteller is able to apply almost a kind of tunnel vision to the narrative. I'm sure everyone has been on the end of a bad story, right? But all that makes it a bad story is that they just don't know what to remove. So they're telling you about their day. And the most interesting thing is that like they witnessed a fist fight at the movie theater. But what they're doing though is they're like, so we just had so much trouble looking for parking. <laughs> yeah. And then we finally found parking. And then, you know, Mario wanted a latte. And I was like, Mario, <laughs> you've been trying to watch your weight for literally three weeks. But I mean, if, if you're not going to be happy going to the movie until you've gotten your latte, then fine. And so then Mario and like you, it takes them like 10 minutes to get to the most exciting part, right? Yeah. Now they're being truthful. That's right. They're telling us everything that happened. Yeah. But a good storyteller removes all of the detritus mm-hmm. and gets us right to the most exciting and interesting part of it. There is a loss there. And I think what you touched on specifically, Sarah, is that I don't know if you experience as, as a kind of blueness or a, a kind of sadness, but like I think that there is a reckoning that one has to do with oneself in a weird way where you have to be like, oh, wow, this part of my life that was incredibly interesting and emotional and personal and relevant to me (laughs) is boring. Yes. And I should remove it. Yes. Oh God, it's been excruciating too because this one is a lot about my dating life. And so like I've had drafts where every chapter was about a different guy. Like the the, the book has changed since then. 
But it was excruciating to get feedback that was like, look, some of these guys are boring. And I was like, they're not. They're not. They're not. They're super interesting. I wrote them boring. Let me do it again. But the point is you can only have so many characters. You can only have so many love stories. You, you can't just keep repeating, repeating, repeating. And yes, there are many, many times that something that is so important to me is not important to the story. And it can hurt to hear that a reader is bored or that a reader just doesn't care because it's like, but I care so much. I feel like that's the dragon that a nonfiction writer must always be chasing. Yeah. It must feel like such a monumental achievement to catch the dragon. And that dragon is, if you can make me care and fall in love with the ex that you're talking about, yeah. if you can get me to see what you saw, to feel what you feel about him, man, what a win. Right. To go back to something you said earlier, how does one capture a feeling and put it on the page? Like, how can I ever understand what it felt like to nestle your head in the arm of a man who loved you in Mexico? How can I ever understand? And I'm referencing an actual particular piece that Sarah wrote. Like, how can I ever experience that, right? And like a really good writer can get me there. But capturing a feeling is difficult because it's kind of like trying to describe how the color blue smells. Yeah. Like you're trying to you're trying to capture something ultra ephemeral and almost inarticulable, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so funny too. The story that you referenced was about an ex of mine. We dated for about two and a half years and we went to Mexico and I, I thought he was going to propose to me on that trip and he didn't. And that was another story that came pretty easily. And I look back on that and I'm like, God, that's so frustrating because I've been trying to write about bigger stories to me. Like that relationship didn't mean as much to me as some other stories did. And I think because of that, I had such a light touch with that story. I wasn't pushing too hard. And I think it works. And I think with these stories that mean so much to us, we want to push so hard. We want you to fall in love so bad. Yeah. And it's like the reader almost senses that and is like pulling away, like stop pushing him on me, you know? Right. It's like when you're in a relationship or a, at the beginning of a relationship and you can tell that they're not as into you as you yes. are into them and they can feel your desperation. And yes, the more you try to pull them closer to get them to love you as much as you love them, the more they pull away because they can feel how desperate you are. Yeah, there's some sort of like repulsion. And it's really interesting and tragic for me because it's like the more I want you to love this person, the more you're going to be annoyed by them because you're sensing my desperation. So I've had to <laughs> to rattle that back in myself. Whereas when I wrote that Mexico story, I really didn't give a damn if anybody liked that guy. And, you know, and then, of course, he's likable enough. Likable enough is what I'm going to give him. <laughs> but I I captured, I think, a certain familiar long-term relationship dynamic in that piece, uh, which is the point at which, you know, you're 30 years old and you're either going to walk down an aisle towards the rest of your life or you're probably going to walk away from each other uh, because that's just the age you're at. And it's kind of like go time. Yes. And we walked away from each other. When I was in screenwriting class years ago, one of the things that just got hammered into us repeatedly is that like, you have to set your story and of course, this is difficult with nonfiction because you don't get to decide exactly when the story happens to you. But um, what makes a story appealing is that it involves like very high stakes that like anyone can understand. A father has to rescue his daughter from traffickers, right? Like that's the plot to Taken. You know, like what are the stakes? Oh, like 
a dad's daughter has been kidnapped, right? You know, or like he doesn't travel back in time to fix his, how his parents met, then he will disappear, right? Like that's back to the future. It's like, what's a higher stake than you disappearing from existence, right? Sure. And I think when it comes to nonfiction, yeah, the, the stakes are high. You're on the cusp, 30, all of your friends are getting married. Yep. And everyone at a certain age understands what that is. Because I've been there. You go to wedding after wedding after wedding after wedding exactly. after wedding, and then the weddings stop. And now you're outside that window. And it, it just feels like there's a bus leaving and you're running to catch it, but you can't. Yeah. It's such a visceral feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one more thing on that. Isn't it interesting how you can only find a kind of universal appeal in the intensely specific? It's the weirdest thing. Right. Like the more specific you get in your individual story, in your life that only one person, Sarah Heppola, has lived, the more we relate to it. It's so strange. And I have to always keep reminding myself of that because, you know, you get into these stories and you're thinking like, you know, nobody's going to want to hear about this, whatever niche experience it is. But, you know, that story in particular takes place in Mexico City and then Oaxaca City and then and then the coast of Mexico. And there's a scene where I'm sitting on the beach and I'm watching him in the water and I'm feeling very uncomfortable about taking my clothes off in front of him and everyone else and getting into the water and I'm making sand mountains with my toes. And so many people have mentioned that scene to me just because even though they never sat on that beach, it sort of spoke about these certain tensions and dynamics that I think float by us all the time and and nobody ever really pauses. It is not as usual that somebody will pause and tell you what they're thinking in that moment. And the shock of being like, oh yeah, I've totally felt that. Like I've had to undress in front of a boyfriend and been like excruciatingly embarrassed about like the certain parts of my thighs. So like I run into the water so nobody sees. And that's the stock and trade of doing what I do is like you're always looking for those moments, the little moments that nobody else has really gotten all the juice out of. Maybe you could take a squeeze. (laughs) Yes. Well, and you know, I have never been on a beach in Mexico. I've never been to Mexico City. I've never been to Oaxaca. I've never known what it's like to be a woman who is self-conscious about her body when she's on a beach and her boyfriend is imploring her to enter the water. I don't know what that is, but I know what elements of those feelings are like. And in the specificity of you describing your experience, I smell the color blue. Mm. I feel the feeling. Even though I haven't experienced that thing, I know what it's like to be in a relationship where I'm like, I feel like we're on the cusp of something going either way. And I feel an undercurrent of sadness that I don't want to acknowledge because if I do, then I make it real. You know, like I I know what that feels like. And only through you getting hyper-specific with what that scene was like for you, do I tap into that emotion that was long dormant in me that triggers the memory that relates to your experience. And it's also so interesting too how, and I deeply relate to this because I I feel like the same thing. It's like back to like the insecurities around bodies and stuff. Self-conscious about taking off one's clothes in front of someone who loves how one's body looks and yet being able to be more vulnerable than 99% of the human populace when it comes to sharing deeply personal things in public. It's just an interesting dynamic that makes humans complex, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Well, one thing, I mean, just to say, like one of the tensions, I probably didn't write about it in that piece, but that particular partner did not love the way that my body looked. And that was one of the reasons why it was not a good match. We shared 
criticisms of my body. That's another interesting thing that self-critical people can do. They can find people that confirm their own beliefs. But it is so true that I am so self-conscious and agonized about showing parts of myself. And then I'll just like rip off all the clothes on the page. I will say that is, I think, a form of control for me. My ability to get final cut on that in a way that I never get in real life is what allows me to do that. You know, it's mastering my own fear through the medium of writing, you know, especially with drinking and blackout stories, because a lot of that stuff was like I had made such a fool of myself. I didn't know what I had done. You know, I I had such a lack of control, a sense of powerlessness that being able to write about it gave me a sense of power and mastery over it. You know, we've talked a bit about your upcoming book, Unattached, that you've been working on these last three years. And we've talked about what it means to be a writer of nonfiction and to have to look at oneself through that lens. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question is, through the process of revisiting yourself, reframing and pruning your own life like like a hedge, what about looking back at your own life while writing this book? Have you learned about yourself or about your own life? What perspective has it given you on Sarah? Well, I think that starting out with this topic, the question for me was like, is it a gift or a curse that I wound up unattached? And there's a couple problems with that hypothetical because wound up is not the right verb. I mean, my life is still ongoing. And B, I don't think anybody ever has the answer of whether a certain sliding door moment in their life was a gift or a curse. You kind of live in the unknowing. But I definitely had this sense or worry that I had made the wrong choices, that I had fallen for the wrong men, I had chased the wrong fires. And coming back to my own story, I have an enormous amount of empathy for the choices that I made. The men that I loved, I still love. You know, they didn't turn out to be men that I wound up with long term. But I love those experiences for me. Each of them opened my eyes in profound ways. I began this afraid that my life was less than. And I think as I, you know, work on revisions, I feel like my life is really super full and that it just looks different than the way other stories are. And that's actually okay. That's actually great. For me, it's good for the market because you want to differentiate yourself, right? (laughs) All stories are different. And mine is the same as all those different stories. So yeah, I have a lot more empathy for myself. I think that even when I was drunk, even when I was young, even when I was head over heels in love and and making maybe slightly questionable decisions, I think I'm somebody with a good head on her shoulders and a good heart inside of her. And I think that operates. You know, I, I have a lot of forgiveness for myself. I'm so glad to hear that. You write with such beauty and incisiveness and tenderness. You're so good, right? And, and, I, and I don't know how you are about receiving compliments, but... I'm okay with it. <laughs> well, that's good. Good. I'm glad you are. And I'm going to link to some of your essays that we've referenced here and some other ones. And I highly recommend to read some of Sarah's accounts of her own life. But this is all to say that I loved this conversation. I would love to have another one with you in the future. And more than anything, Sarah... I guess I'm just really glad I wore that jacket. 
<laughs> I think you should wear it every day from now on. I'm going to get my own jacket and then I'm going to show up to a, an event and it's going to be embarrassing while you're there. <laughs> but yes, I loved being on this podcast. Thank you for such a lovely conversation. Thank you. Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. If you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two-sentence review on Apple Podcasts.